You know, really uh, excited for this weekend. We've never done a parent-child dedications quite this way before, you know, having them kind of play out throughout all of our services uh, over at the well. And so we're excited about that and being able to do that. Just see all the families that are kind of growing up here in the church. And actually, perfect timing. Uh, by the way, my name is Dave, and thank you so much for being here uh, with us as we get into the Word. You know, I think one of the things that really lines up well is we're heading back into our study of Ephesians. And as we look at it, we're going to be in that passage that deals with ch uh, children and parent relationships. And so really well time for this. Uh, before we get into that, uh, I wanted to start off just by recognizing this is Veterans Day today, Veterans Day weekend. And we want to spend out just our deepest thank you to all of those that serve our country, whether they've done it now, whether they've done that in the past, all of those that have given their lives to protect our democracy, to protect our values, our freedoms. Those are the things I know for myself that are so easy just to take for granted, but we benefit from those each and every day. And just extend that thank you and appreciation to all the families out there and the sacrifice that they've made having their loved ones go away uh, to protect themselves or even losing those loved ones. And so before we get into the word, I would love to pray for those people, pray for those families. I would love to pray for our time in the word of God. So please pray with me, church. Father, we thank you for uh, the opportunity to be here today. And uh, Lord, as we recognize Veterans Day weekend, uh, Lord, it's always, I think, with a heavy heart and the fact of what our freedom costs, Lord, and all those that have given their lives, all those that have sacrificed time with their family, Lord, being away from those that they love the most uh, for the sake of this country and what it stands for. And today we reap the benefits of that each and every day. And so, Father, we just pray for them. We pray that you'd be with the families who have loved ones that are serving right now that they can't be with, that maybe are far, far, far away from home. Protect them. Keep them safe, Father. Uh, draw them close to you. Father, as we uh, get into the Word of God uh, today, I pray, Lord, that you'd speak to us. As we look at Ephesians and all these ways of what a spirit-filled life looks like, tonight we're going to look at submission. And what does submission look like? And I think that's one of the hardest uh, disciplines to live out in our lives, one of the most challenging things that you call us to day in and day out. So speak to us through the word of God. I pray the things that we take with us today would carry forth with us all throughout the week and days and weeks to come. We love you and we praise you and pray all these things in your precious name. Amen. Well, like I mentioned, we're picking up back in Ephesians uh, today. And a couple weeks ago, Pastor Dan was looking at Ephesians 5 and he was really breaking down these characteristics of what a spirit-filled life looked like. And the final one that we saw in verse 21 was, it said this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so Paul takes this idea of submission and he practically shows what it looks like in these key areas of our lives, these key relationships that we have. And in chapter five, he looks at that through the scope of marriage, right? Husband and wife. What does submission look like in that relationship? And today it looks like through child-parent relationships. And we just wanted to make a note. We know that uh, last week, you know, Pastor Greg uh, really brought us up to date on the situation in Israel and spoke so powerfully through that. But we skipped past the passage on marriage. And that's such a key one. And uh, we really want to be able to kind of come back to that and dedicate time that's needed. And we also made an adjustment for today. Originally, we were going to cover Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. And verses 5 through 9 really focus in on slaves and masters, employee-employer relationships. And all of these, we really want to give it its due time. We really want to focus solely on those things. So we're going to do our best to come back to those topics hopefully soon. So we'll kind of keep you guys posted on that. But for today, we're going to look at Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. And again, this focuses on child-parent relationships. And I want to read for you guys the whole verse, and we'll just dig uh, right in. So picking up uh, chapter 6, verses 1, it says this, and you'll see it up here on the screen. If you guys have your Bibles or your apps, please open them up. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. 
You know, so while the word submission it isn't never explicitly uh, shared here in these verses, the idea really influences all of these verses. And I wanted to ask you this question before we get into it. You know, when you guys think of the word submit, what are some things that come to mind? You might have some words that follow that, some actions, you know, that follow that. I, I think when I ask most people uh, what they think when they think of submit, it's kind of this idea of weakness maybe, um, being inferior, being secondary, uh, someone who is over you. Maybe it's like a loss of control that you don't really appreciate. I think of uh, wrestling and mixed martial arts, you know, and, and to submit uh, means to tap out, right? It's probably one of the worst ways to lose. You know, as a kid growing up, we would do those submission holds like the, the figure four leg lock or the full Nelson, right? Anybody do those? No? Okay, cool. Thanks. That's great. But, but, but we would have fun with that, right? That was always about submission. And I think all of this just supports the idea that today, for most of us, when we think of submission, it's not something that we hold in high regard. And that's totally understandable. And uh, as we study this, I think we really want to look at what is, what is submission? How do we define it? And it's tricky because I think there's a couple different definitions. There's the world's definition of submission and what that looks like. And then there's the biblical definition of what submission looks like. And so let's look at both so we have a clear understanding of that going into this passage. The world's definition of submission, if you're looking at various dictionaries, they would put it out like this. It's to let down. It's to reduce. It's to yield. It's to have a secondary mission that yields to a greater one. And I think the picture that comes to mind when you think of this might be of someone kind of kneeling down, right? Maybe kneeling down before a superior, someone that is over them. And even our modern language, you think of the whole word submission, it's this thought that you have a secondary mission that yields or that is below a greater one, right? The whole idea of a submission. Now, if we look at it in the Bible, you know, looking at it in the context that it's used right here, uh, the Greek words found in the New Testament, and for there it means to put under or arrange under. And it's really a military word that was used uh, to refer to low-ranking soldiers who arranged themselves um, according to the higher officers and to kind of create a whole proper order and authority. That was really the, the goal behind it was to create order, to create authority that everybody knew where they sat in the pecking order. So submission then comes from an acknowledgement of really you're looking for a helpful order. You're looking really for a helpful structure. And so I would say the biblical definition of submission would be this. It's a spiritual discipline where we elevate God's will and his desires over our own. It's a spiritual discipline where we elevate God's will and desires over our own. And I would say, man, this idea of submission impacts all of us. We may not think of this, but it, it plays itself into children, parents, brothers, sisters, husbands, wives, employee, employers. It filters into every relationship we have. And today we're going to look at it through a child-parent relationship, but it's really relevant to each and every one of us. And we may, whether we know it or not, multiple times a day we are submitting to someone or somebody around us is submitting to us. We may just not call it that, but that's really the dynamic that's at play. And even if we don't feel like submission impacts us at all, at all times, we are called to be submitting to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. At the very least, that is who we submit to on a regular basis. And this discipline was so crucial. It was so important that Jesus modeled it time and time and time again as he submitted himself not only to his father, but in many ways he submitted himself to people, to everyday things that, that we go through. And he showed this in these day-to-day -day opportunities. I want to just lay this out because I don't think we picture Jesus operating in this capacity, but he did because he was a normal person like us in these day-to-day -day activities. But he submitted himself in obeying to his parents. He submitted himself to the authority of his parents. He completed carpentry jobs for customers. So he was kind of submitting in a way of customer service, right? Serving a customer, meeting their need. 
he submitted himself to John's baptism. So in a spiritual capacity that John would be there to be willing to baptize him. He did it in paying taxes. So he was recognizing the government in that. He performed menial servant duties. He relied on his disciples for support, so embracing their help. He surrendered to soldiers when he didn't have to in the garden. He subjected himself to illegal trials, so really kind of putting himself under the judicial system. He yielded to Pilate's verdict, even though it was unfair. And he even handed over his mission when he was done to his disciples. So he was submitting this ministry, and he was entrusting it to other people to take it beyond where he could go. And before the ultimate act of submission, before his death on the cross, and kind of knowing the way it was to come, Jesus was praying. And this is what he said in Luke 22, this famous passage, verses 41 through 42. It says, at that time, Jesus says, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. For Jesus, I mean, he knew what was to come. He knew the pain he was going to undergo. And he asked if this cup, if it was possible, could it be passed from him? But ultimately, he would always submit himself to the authority of his father and that that will would be done. And the great thing about Jesus is that he never asks us to do something that he hasn't modeled for us first, that he hasn't accomplished to the best degree. He shows us what that looks like. And Jesus knew that as difficult as submission would be, that there was a freedom in it. That there was something that we were being freed from, that Christ was, that we needed to experience this because it frees us from the burden. I think this is true of each of us. And I know it's true for me that I think we're all hardwired with this desire to want our own will, right? To kind of do the things that we want to do. That's always kind of there inside of us. And he knew that really you look at it with children. They, they feel this all the time. And having children, you see it, that they want their own way. That's just how they're wired. And hopefully over time and by the direction of their parents, they learn to overcome that. They learn to give in to that and to be able to put others, people's wills and their wishes and, and their importance above our, their own. But that's something that they have to learn. They have to really learn that. And so biblical submission, it helps us to let go of that need. It helps us to see that there is a value in putting other people before us. In doing that, it helps us to honor them. It helps us to prefer them. And I think really in many ways it helps us to love them the way that God calls us to love them. That's what submission does. You know, I think of, of this illustration um, and kind of these differences between, you know, what the world's definition of submission is and what the Bible's definition is. And it kind of reminds me of yielding on a stop sign. You know, your car comes to that stop sign and, you know, you yield to maybe the car that got there first or maybe it's the car on your right. But you don't yield to that car because they drive a better car than you because that car costs more, right? That's not why you yield. You don't do it because that person is more important than you, because they're superior to you. I would imagine we all yield for a variety of reasons, but we do it because maybe we're obeying a law. And by doing that, we're obeying the lawmakers. We're doing it in some way to promote order, that there's an order to this process, that you know when you go, you know when the other person goes. So it perpetuates this order that's helpful for everyone. We yield because it protects us, it keeps us safe, and it also protects the other driver. And then we yield and submit because there's really what's going on is there's a greater purpose going on that's outside of ourselves. That's why we do that. And so as we get into submission in this passage, I just want us to kind of have that understanding. And we're going to read again verses 1 through 3. And we're looking at this kind of through the lens of a child and how they submit to their parents. So let's read it one more time. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor. And I want you guys to underline honor. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. 
Again, underline obey, if you guys can, in verse 1, and underline honor in verse 2. So obey, that really is an action, right? That's an action that we're living out when we're obeying. And I think the motive behind uh, obeying, we see that in verse 2, is to honor. The whole hope with obeying is that we want to honor our parents. We want to respect them. And again, like I mentioned, for, as I'm watching my two-year-old grow up, like, I don't have to teach him to disobey. He just knows how to do it. At some point, he knew in his heart that he wanted to disobey his mom and dad. He's two and a half now, so we see it like every day. It's right there in front of us. And it's kind of important up to us to kind of teach him how to obey. And that's a, that's a lifelong process of what that looks like. But, but the reason I think why it's so important to teach our children to obey is because in many ways, it promotes uh, an orderly, it promotes a well-functioning society. And I think children who obey their parents, they're really getting the building blocks they need to be able to obey the Lord. By obeying their parents and just going through that discipline, they're going to learn like what it looks like to obey their father at some point. And children, they're able to obey their parents for seasons of their lives that they grow from child to adult. And at some point, you know, when they come of age, whatever that may be, or maybe when they are married and they have a family of their own, they become responsible for themselves and their decision-making. And so what obeying looks like may change. Um, and while at some point this does change, we see here it says to honor their parents. Honoring your parents never changes. That call is always there for a child to their parent. And honoring your parents as they grow, I think there's some things. What does it actually look like to honor our parents? Well, I think there's some factors that dictate that. Maybe it's your age. Maybe it's your life stage. Maybe it's even your culture. I think in some cultures, the idea of obeying your parents and honoring them, uh, there's this pressure to do that throughout the course of your life. That's always the expectation. No matter how old you get, you are to honor your parents. You're to obey them, to listen to them. I think in some cultures, they have a much higher requirement of involvement within your family, within your life. And... That doesn't change when you have your family of your own, but there's this expectation that your family is always going to be there in the mix, uh, really involved in your affairs. And so whether you come from an American culture, maybe you come from an Arabian culture, a Chinese culture, an African culture, uh, this will impact how you honor your parents. It will change it, how you perceive it. And so some of these factors, you know, are, they do have a degree of variety to them. But I think to get to the core of it, what does it really look like day to day to actually honor our parents? What is something that's consistent for each of us that we can live out? And I wanted to provide you a lot of what you're going to see today. There's threes. We're going to see things in, in trios, uh, whether it's submitting, uh, whether it's disciplining our children, instructing them. What does it look like? What are three ways we can actually live that out and we can all follow that? And so I wanted to show you guys three ways that we can honor our children. We Actually, honor our parents. I'm sorry. Number one. We want to show a positive regard for parents through our words and through our behaviors. So basically, it's what, are, what do we say about our parents? What's our attitude towards them? What are the words that come out of our mouth? You know, when you talk to them directly or when you talk about them with other people. You know, do you find yourselves at times building your parents up in how you see them and how you talk about them? Or do you see yourself tearing them down? And hopefully, if you're blessed to have parents that were great, that you really love and admire, hopefully the words are kind. And I would just say this because I, I know something that you just take for granted is that you'll have all the time in the world to share it with them. And sometimes you don't. And so when those opportunities arise, if you're 10, if you're 20, if you're 40, 50, 60, 70, God willing, if your parents are there, let them know that you appreciate them when the time is right, when it's appropriate. It will bless them. And how you talk about them with other people, it will bless other people as well. But I also understand on the flip side, for maybe some of you, as you look, think about your parents, 
maybe it's your parents as a whole, maybe it's one specific parent in general, that you really struggle to have a good attitude towards them. You really struggle to say good things about them. And it would almost feel disingenuous to, to heap praise upon them, to share uplifting words about them, whether you're sharing it to them directly or you're talking about them with other people. And I would say this, God understands that. He understands where you're at. He wants to meet you in that and help you work through that process. And I think at the very least, I would say honoring your parent in this situation looks like this. It's that you don't tear them down. That if you don't have something positive to say about them, that you don't say anything at all. Instead, you continue to allow God into that process to work in your heart. But that you don't actively look for ways to, to tear your parents down, either in your attitude towards them or your words to them. So that's the first one. What is our attitude? What is our words? How can we honor our parents through that? The second one is adult children should listen to and consider a parent's biblically informed. I think that's a key word there, biblically informed and wise counsel. You know, parents can have so much wisdom. And many times, I know for myself, I don't want to hear it. I know they're wise. I know they've lived a long life. I know they've been through a lot. But there's times in my life where I haven't wanted to hear my parents' wisdom. But if I'm honest with myself, they've gone through so much. They've traveled the roads that, that I'm going down now. They have insight that they could share that would help me. And I think that many times we need to seek that out. We need to welcome that. And many times we don't. We take it for granted. They have lived lives. They've, many of them have raised kids. And there's this pool of godly wisdom that they could be sharing that maybe we're missing out on. It's right there for us. It's right there at the taking. And yet we're not reaching out and grabbing it. And I would say, man, we need to be intentional in that. We need to lean into that because that's a way that God can speak to us. And that's a way of honoring them because what it says is your experiences, what you've been through, it matters. It's important. I want to hear it. I want to invite that into me. That's what you're conveying to your parents when you ask them for their wisdom. And again, I always say the key word in that is biblically informed and wise counsel. Because there's going to be time we, we seek this wisdom from our parents. And if it's not biblically based, if it's not rooted in that, then I don't think it's not that we don't want to hear it, but we really want to weigh it before we follow it. We really want to look at this and say, is this wise? Is this what we should do? But if you know it's, it's biblically based and it's wise, then we want, to, we want to welcome that into our lives. And I think it's only going to help us grow. And it's, if you have children, it's going to help you as you raise your own children. And I want to read just one quick scripture from Job 12, 12, which really speaks to the wisdom that those that have had experience has. And it says, wisdom is with the age and understanding in length of days. And God is telling us, man, there is wisdom to be had. Just find it and seek it out. The third one, the third way we can honor our parents. We honor our parents when we care for them when they can't care for themselves. And I get it. I get it. Sometimes caring for older parents it can seem like a burden. It might be a massive undertaking depending on where they are physically, what they're going through. Especially if you have your own family that you're trying to care for and you're trying to juggle both of these but in truth, I think how God wants us to view it is not as a burden, but as a privilege. That is a privilege to be able to care for our parents in this way. Because in caring for older parents, we return the gift of care that they gave us all those years. And now I'm seeing that front and center as I'm raising this little guy, two years old, all the hours and the lack of sleep and the sacrifice that goes into his life. And I'm not asking for anything in return. I'm happy to do it. I love it that I get a chance to do it. But you start to have an understanding of all that goes into that. And then you start to realize, man, this is what my parents did for me. This is what my parents poured into me. And if they get to that point where they can't take care of themselves, how could I not want to repay them or love them by taking them in, by doing all that I can do to care for them? when they can't care for themselves. 
And it's really, if you would say, well, maybe my parents didn't, <laughs> didn't do a very good job of raising me. Maybe it was a very destructive, uh, damaging environment. Then I would say what you're doing then is you have the chance to show unmerited love and grace by correcting that and how you care for them. That doesn't absolve you of the responsibility of caring for your parents if you weren't raised the right way or you didn't perceive that you were. But now there's this chance to live out what God has asked you to do. That if it isn't earned, it would be grace that you're showing them. And what will that speak into their lives if they see you live that out and care for them the best that you can? So either way, caring for older parents is something God calls us to do. And it's really a way of serving him and glorifying him. So hopefully those are some real practical, tangible ways that you can honor your parents no matter what age you are. So knowing all of this, let's go back to verse 2, because it says, honor your, your, your father and mother. And then in parentheses, there's this really interesting uh, statement. So this is the first commandment with a promise. Now, what does that mean, that this is the first commandment with a promise? And as I had the chance to look into this, refers back to Exodus chapter 20, and this is the fifth of the Ten Commandments. And, you know, its placement in the Ten Commandments, I think it's really important. It's very strategic because it links the first five commandments. And all those first five commandments deal with you and God. They're commandments between you and God. Things like you shall not take the Lord's name in vain or you shall not worship other gods, right? Those are between you and God. And it links them to the next five commandments, which deal with you and people. Commandments like you shall not murder, you shall not steal. And it's significant because it says there's a definite connection between the ways that we relate with our parents and the ways that we relate with God. So in other words, the discipline of obeying and listening to a parent, what it does is it trains a child up to listen and obey the Lord. And it also helps us to treat other people with respect, those people around us. By this, Paul's saying, if you want to be a leader, if you want to be obeyed, if you want to be submitted to, then you, you must be deserving of that obedience and submission by showing respect and care for others. It's always a two-way street with God. You never, there's never a person that, that is in submission to you that you in turn aren't there to care for or, or to really take that seriously or in some ways even submit to them. There's always a give and take to it. It's never a one-sided relationship or one-sided dynamic. It's earned. That respect is earned. So you can't be a disengaged passive husband and expect that your wife is willingly going to submit to your authority. It doesn't work that way. You can't be an angry and demanding and a harsh father and expect that your children are going to willfully obey you. You can't be a harsh, demanding employer who plays, clearly plays favorites and expect that your employees are going to go 100% for you. It doesn't work that way. In many ways, you have to earn that. You have to show that mutual respect and care for the other person. And they, in turn, hopefully at that point, will submit to you in whatever that role may be. And that's something I want to share with you guys. The truth about submission is that submission must be mutual. It requires mutual respect and honor. And that mutual respect is built when each side is really living out what God has called them to do. So let's move ahead to verse 4 because that idea of submission being mutual uh, plays out again. As Paul, this time he kind of puts his focus on fathers. And he gives this, this direct instruction on what they should do and what they shouldn't do with their children. And he says this in Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I thought to myself, why are fathers, why are they being singled out here? Why are they being called out? You know, what is going on in this instruction that they're not to provoke anger in their kids? I'm wondering, like, what kind of what's, what's the context of this? And Paul is very... Uh, strategic, I think, with it. The reality is, is that the audience Paul is writing to, they knew that at that point, fathers had all the power 
in the family. It wasn't the mothers, it was the fathers. They, they spiritually, um, education, they really kind of ruled the home. And that's what was recognized by society. That was what was recognized by the government. And this power extended over the child's life really as long as the child was around. So they had their own family. So as long as the father lived, they always had this upper hand over their children. They always had this authority that they could call upon. They called the shots. And that's just the way it worked at that time. And so it was a big deal. And it's really, I think, countercultural that Paul declares that no absolute authority for fathers in this. And instead, he's saying fathers are asked to treat their children with the utmost care and concern. He's saying that's what you're to do. Not to provoke them to anger, but you're to show the utmost care and concern for your children. And I think when these types of specific commands come up, um, it's, I think it's always wise to ask, well, what's the behavior? What's the attitude that Paul is speaking out against here? You know, it doesn't, it's a very direct command, but there's, there's no, um, there's no like layout of what he's saying, don't specifically, don't do this, do this. What does that really look like? And if fathers had all the power, how are they using it in a way that's damaging their children? And I would even say that some of these behaviors, while it's designated fathers, some of these behaviors are lived out by mothers as well. Some mothers would want to listen to this. Parents in general would want to listen to this. And I wanted to lay out for you three behaviors that are very damaging to our children that provoke anger, that provoke um, a lack of self-confidence within them. And the first one is this, is when we have that approach that when nothing is ever good enough, when nothing is ever good enough, it's this thought that no matter what the child does, no matter what the child might achieve, there really isn't encouragement in that. And your child might study, right? And they might put all of their time and effort into something and give their very best shot. And they might get a B. And instead of recognizing that and, and applauding them and saying, hey, great job. I'm so proud of you for giving everything you got. There might be this sense of, hey, that's not good enough. You got to get an A next time. Or it might be a very passive encouragement. Hey, great job, but you know you've got to do better next time, right? And there's nothing wrong with, with prompting our kids to want to do better, encouraging them that. But we can't recognize the effort and the time they're putting in and acknowledge that and meet them in that and encourage that. Then all of that kind of goes out the window. And I think what happens to a child that's very deflating to them, if that happens time in, time out, it might really lead them to seek approval in a lot of different ways. And it really takes a big hit out of their self-confidence when they feel like nothing they do is ever good enough and they're not receiving the right encouragement from their family, from their parents. The second one is when, when fathers or mothers or parents in general play the comparison game. And that's directly stating, or maybe indirectly stating, that your child should be like someone else. Maybe even like another sibling within your family. It might go like, hey, I wish you listened like your brother and sister do. How come you can't listen like them? How come you can't do it like them? It might be saying, you'll work harder like this student or like this teammate uh, or like your friend because whatever, whatever you're talking about, they do it better than you. So why can't you be like that? Why don't you follow their model? And when you hear that consistently, it really begins to ruin your confidence. It makes you feel inferior. And I think what could even happen is it brings up feelings of jealousy. Jealousy, when you look at those other people that your family's holding up as the bar, and you might have jealousy towards them because they're receiving something that you're not getting from your parents, and that is encouragement. That is recognition. And that just is a slippery slope that leads nowhere good. So playing the comparison game. And the final one is when parents vicariously live through your child's achievements or failures. I think what happens to varying levels is that you, when you live this way, is that you're putting pressure on your child. Uh, and it's not for their benefit. It's really for yours. 
that when they succeed and they do well, you're happy for them, but you feel like you're living that out. And you feel like that is becoming a part of who you are. And I think what this isn't saying is that you can't be proud of your children. Of course you should. Of course you should want to be able to root for them and be their biggest fan. But when you take it personally when they fail because you feel like it's a slight at you, you know, or when you take this out on them for not achieving what you hoped they would achieve, you have to check your something. Hey, what is going on here? Is this for their benefit or is this for my benefit? And you're setting your children up for, for a failure. And I think what begins to happen is you begin to rob them of the joy when they do succeed because they don't feel like it's theirs anymore. They feel like it's all due to their parents because of how you're reacting and how you're uh, living that out. And I think the downside is when they don't achieve what you want them to, well, what's the fallout from that? What does that look like? And it could really affect your relationship with that child. And those are just a handful. There's so many more behaviors like this that we can engage in today um, that they did in biblical times that Paul is speaking out against. But I think at the end of the day, what he's really asking of fathers here is that, that they would encourage their kids instead of frustrating them. That they would support them instead of kind of squashing them. And that they would discipline them in love instead of disciplining them in anger. Now, I'll be honest with you guys. I've kind of referenced my son, Carter. Uh, he's two and a half. I'll show you a picture of him and his mom up here. He's two and a half. Now, that's Carter. And he's a cute little guy. And that's, his, uh, that's my uh, wife, Sarah. And she's cute in a different way that I like. And, uh, you, know, we, uh, you know, we've gone through this season of parenting, uh, you know, where now, Carter, you know, I feel like in the first year, you're, you're basically trying to just keep them alive, right? Everything is like a physical need, feeding them, sleeping right, you know. But now we're in the, in, in the stage where there's actually, their personalities are coming out. And they're starting to assert their will, what they want, what they want to achieve. And there are times where I'm trying to change his diaper. We're potty training him right now, um, and we're, we're switching him into pull-ups when he goes to school. And there's times where man, he doesn't want to wear that thing. And there's clothes I want to put him in to get him to school on time, but he doesn't want to wear it. And he's running around the house. He's trying to get away from me. And he's just saying, no, no, no. He doesn't want it to happen. And I'm trying to follow him and make this happen. And my, honestly, my first instinct as a dad is, you know what? I'm going to force you to do this. You know, you're two and a half. You're not going to tell me what to do. I'm going to physically impose my will on you, and I'll put you down. I'm going to put that diaper on you whether you like it or not because you don't know what's right or wrong in this situation. And I can force that diaper on him. And as I'm doing that, he doesn't understand. He just screams more. He gets more upset. And he starts to have that cry where he's almost choking on his tears because he doesn't understand what's going on. He just knows that something he doesn't want to do is being forced upon him. And I think this is... In a, in a way, what this verse is warning us about, like forcing, provoking anger in our kids. And God bless my wife, Sarah, because of the two, she is so kind and compassionate and, and understanding. And I think she gets where I'm coming from. She knows my frustration. But I think what she's been encouraging me to do with Carter is instead of exerting and forcing my will upon him, is, is trying to acknowledge his feelings, trying to be there with him and meet him where he's at. And it might look like explaining what I'm trying to do. Hey, Carter, we're, we're trying to get you to school. I'm putting this on you so that, you know, the pee-pee and poo-poo won't go onto your clothes, right? And just trying to explain this thing to him of what's going on. It might be me providing options for him of what he wants to wear. Hey, do you want to wear this or this? Because if he picks it out, he might be willing to wear it and much more compliant in that way. But all of this, does it take longer? Yes, it takes longer, right? And a lot of times we're late, which I hate. Does it always work? No, it does not always work. But does it work sometimes? And I would say yes. And I think what's happening is I don't want to build this dynamic with Carter, even at this age where I'm always forcing things on him, 
or I'm always forcing him to do something because there's going to become a day where I can't force him to do anything anymore. And I don't want to build this relationship with him that's built on force and aggression. I want it to be built on communication and him knowing that I hear him, that I'm willing to listen to him even when he's only two and a half years old. And I think this is all part of the discipline and instruction process that we see that's talked about here in verse 4. And I think the question I have, the question most of us will have is, how do I bring my child up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? I mean, we could be here all day going through those answers. But, you know, this, this past week, and I know Pastor Greg's alluded to this before, you know, we, we have a passage of Scripture that we're going to preach that weekend. On Tuesdays, we'll sit down as a staff and we'll just have a Bible study and we'll go through it. And, uh, and just pull it apart and we'll talk about things that maybe we should preach on or maybe it's just personal experiences that we have with this piece of scripture. But I had the chance to talk to our staff, most of our staff was there this past week, uh, about what does it look like to, to discipline and, and instruct our children. Because, I mean, I'm a, I feel like a rookie still. My kid's only two. Some of these people here at the table have grown up children or multiple children. And I, I did a little, from who we had at that table from our staff, they, they had 19 children together ranging from newborns to full-grown adults with multiple youth pastors and youth workers who have had hour after hours of experience working with your children. So I feel like this was a good pool of wisdom to draw upon to ask this question. So this is what they shared in answering that question. What does it look like to practically bring up your child in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? And the first one that they shared was that it's a parent's responsibility to instruct their children in the Lord, not the churches, not the school, not entertainment, or not social media. And the thought behind that is some of these areas like church, right? Of course, church can be a crucial benefit in helping to shape and instruct your children. But it shouldn't be relied on as the primary source of a child growing in their relationship with Christ. It shouldn't be relied on, hey, this couple hours out of the week on Friday night or on Saturday or on Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon, this is where you're going to hear about God and you're not going to hear it anywhere else the rest of the week. It can't function that way. It can be a supplement, but it can't be the main dish. It has to come from the parents. It's their responsibility. And other sources we might rely on where they spend a lot of time at school, social media, entertainment, they're most likely going to lead our kids away from Christ. They're not going to lead them towards them. That's because their values, what they're, what they're promoting is totally opposed to the Bible many times. So how can we rely on them to instruct and discipline in the ways of the Lord? We can't. That instruction, that discipline, it must come from us. It must come from you. It must come from me because we're the ones that spend the most time with our kids. We're the ones that have that voice. We've been given the God-given authority to be able to speak into their lives that way. And we got to take advantage of that. That is our primary responsibility to instruct them and discipline them in the ways of the Lord. And there are 1,900 references in the Bible that talk about parents, fathers, mothers, children. None of those command an outside source to be the primary, have the primary responsibility of helping your kids grow spiritually. Never in those scriptures, it always comes back to the parents, to the parents. They're ground zero. So that's the first, I think, really important, tangible part about instructing, instructing and disciplining our children. The second one would be instruction and discipline happens in intentional conversations. Communication daily, it, it's a must. And it's not just that conversation, I think I'm guilty of this, where you're just kind of talking about your day. Um, it's more of just facts and figures, and there's nothing really substantial in the conversation. Um, but it's taking the time to sit with your child and just really hear them. And this, in turn, gives you a chance to share with them and really share who are you. And, and I would say to a child, they want to know their parents. They want to spend time with them, especially when they're little. They want to know who you are. 
And if you create this foundation when they're young, hopefully, that you're sitting there, that you're present with them, that there's open communication, that they can come to you, that they know who you are, that's going to help when they get older, when they're teenagers. And now it's not so easy to talk with them. It's not so easy to have those daily conversations. But because you put the work in early and you built those building blocks, there's a much more likely chance that that communication will continue when they get older, when those life stages become more difficult. And this daily communication, it's the building blocks to a real relationships with your kids. And I think what you'll see is it gives your kids a chance to open up and share because sometimes that's not something they're going to do naturally unless you open the door for them, unless you create an, uh, create an opportunity and an inviting experience for them to be able to share with you. And I think it's in those times that even in discipline that it becomes more effective when there's an active communication going on daily because you can share why you're disciplining your child, what the whole point of this is. And honestly, you know, and I know for myself, as I look back as a kid, even in that, I didn't understand it at times. But I think I always appreciated that my parents took the time to share it with me. And it wasn't lost on me. Actually, sometimes it'd be years later that the gravity of what they were teaching me finally hit my heart and finally came into clear focus. But it's really for a greater instructional purpose down the road. And I think these intentional conversations, they allow you to point out God just in the everyday pace, normal pace of life. The truth is that it's not these big moments where we're always going to have a chance to teach our children. Maybe those will pop up from time to time, but it's really the day-to-day things that happen that we're able to instruct, that we're able to discipline. Looking at, hey, how did you talk to your brother or sister today? What was going on? And being able to instruct in the everyday things. What was happening today out on the field? How come you were so frustrated? How come you were so competitive? And just being able to talk about those things in the day-to-day, right? But having that open link that's there for you, hopefully each day that gives you an opportunity to speak Christ into those situations. So instruction and discipline that happens in intentional conversations. The last one is very simply modeling it, living it out. For kids, what they see and what they hear greatly influences what they become. You, me, we're their primary role model. And of course they're going to mimic us, for better or for worse. I see that with my son now. When I say a word, he'll come right back and say it two seconds later now. And I realize, man, what I'm doing is setting the tone for him. And sometimes it's a humbling, weighty uh, experience. Because I realize he's watching me all the time, picking up things that I'm doing, whether I realize it or not. And so I would say if you serve, if you pray regularly, if you display patience, if you bring fun to your family, if you have a sacrificial attitude, there's a good chance that these attributes will be picked up by your children. On the flip side, if you're angry, if you're impatient, if you're speaking badly of others, if you're sarcastic, there's a good chance that they might pick up those attributes too. And all of this just speaks to us modeling the character and the attributes of God. Are we modeling them? And I will say none of us are perfect, right? We're not going to be able to do that every second of every day. We're going to mess up. We're going to do things we shouldn't do. But are we always cognizant of the fact that we are modeling Christ to our kids? Are we aware of that and able to make the adjustments and do more good than bad? And can we create a godly model that they can follow? You know, I just want to close with this. It's the fact that you know, parenting, and this is not lost on anybody here who is a parent, but parenting is hard. And I think the thing I've seen is there is a level of submission that comes every single day. I think one of the biggest wake-up calls for me when I became a father was how much I would have to submit in my life, submit to him, how much I would have to submit to my wife, how much I would have to submit to God. 
And I think the thing was, I knew this was going to happen. This wasn't, this wasn't a shock to me, but the level of sacrifice and the level of submission that happened, that's what really caught me off guard. And again, we think of that submission, right? A secondary mission that yields, yields to a greater one, a more important one. And there are days, I think, where this comes naturally, where it's a little easier for me to live out. And there's days where I don't sleep. There's days where I feel like I'm letting go of pieces of my life, things that I really value that were part of my life before my child came into it. And I'm almost in a way trying to retrain my mind to embrace this truth that this little life comes first now. I have to retrain my mind because for 40 years of my life, I was single. And I submitted to Christ, but I got to dictate what my life looked like. And now that's not the case. And I have to retrain my mind to think differently. And you're saying you never realize how selfish you are until you have a child that is abundantly clear and true. And there's days I struggle with this daily submission. And, and I would say, has it gotten easier? I mean, the seasons change and the demands change of parenthood, but I would never say one is easier per se than the other. And I think when I feel that, I, I feel this guilt because I know I, I have this blessing from God that many people would give anything for. I have this child that I look at that I love, that has so much energy and personality, and I'd do anything for him. And yet there's this struggle to submit my life. There's this struggle to submit and give him my best. And there's this grief of the life that I used to have where I got to do more things for myself. And, and I struggle with elevating him. I struggle with elevating my family. And I feel guilt about that. And I think the thing that God's been meeting me in that is that's, that's real. You can love your child and sacrifice for them and do whatever you can for them and still struggle with submission. And God will meet you in that. It's not one or the other, but sometimes you'll struggle with both in the same day. But I think the truth that has become clearer and the focus is, is that each season of Carter's life is that these daily acts of submission that I give God, that my wife gives God, has led us step by step to become more Christ-like because we have to submit to God first so that we can submit ourselves to raise Carter in the ways that Christ has called us to. And I think the key of this whole thing, guys, not just from, from parent to child, but in any relationship that we come into, is that when we're submitting, we are submitting for a person, but ultimately we're submitting to God. And that's the key. If we can submit to him first, and because it's him and because of his love, I think mean, that makes the process much more doable when we have to submit to a person. And I think mean, that's, where, that's where I get messed up. That's where many of us get messed up in this equation is we look at the face, we look at the person. Instead of looking at our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that's where submission comes from, the root of it. And I'll just close it with this. This idea of daily discipline and instruction that God desires for, for children, um, I think it's our hope that Carter wouldn't just hear us say that, but that he would see it happen. And uh, I mean, again, we're far, far from perfect. And I think for any parent here, any child here would say the same, but this submission to Christ, I think is the only way we'll ever get remotely close to showing Carter what a life lived for Christ generally looks like. And I can't come back to the fact that when we submit, when we put something above ourselves, the only thing that we gotta put above is Jesus Christ. Let me close our time in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for um, how you have modeled submission for us, Lord. I mean, you, you know, the God of this universe uh, who every knee should bow to, yet you modeled in your life here what submission looked like, even in just the day-to-day -day activities that many of us go through. And you showed us that it's possible when we rely on Christ. 
And then no matter what type of relationship we live out, these crucial areas of our lives with our, with our kids, with our parents, with our marriage, that submission, that that heart needs to be there to really live that out, to mutually respect each other. And when we live that out, we model you, Father. That is what society will see. That is what our friends who are far from God or our coworkers will see that will impact them. Is that we're willing to put ourselves secondary because we're elevating others before us. And we're only able to do that because you do that for us, Lord. I pray, Father, for all of our parents that are here today that are struggling, um, that you would fill them, Lord, that you would help them each day reach that finish line of loving their children, of elevating them, of submitting their own self for their own sake. And that when the road gets tough and there's struggles, Lord, and it's the last thing we want to do, Lord, I pray that you would fill our cups so we could do it again and again and again. But thank you for the love and the care that you show us. We pray all this in your precious and your holy name, Father. Amen.